0: Welcome to episode 17 of the Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bennell and we're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published by Viking in 1951. In this episode, we're still in the section called John Considine and the Box Houses, 1893 to 1910. The secret of Considine's success was the advent of the moving picture as a means of entertainment. The first moving picture had been shown in Seattle in 1894. Four years later, Considine had shown, as part of the entertainment at the Peoples, a veriscope reproduction of Ruby Bob Fitzsimmons KO'ing Gentleman Jim Corbett in Carson City. These showings were merely demonstrations of a novel toy. The Nickelodeon craze began to sweep the East in 1896, but it was five years before Seattle had its first movie house, La Petite, a hole in the wall on Pike Street. The Nickelodeons were usually nothing more than stores converted into theaters by the addition of several rows of chairs or benches. La Petite had been in operation less than a year when a more enterprising establishment was opened on the second floor of the Times Building. It was run by the local distributor of Edison Phonograph Records. Edison's unique theater boasted that it offered, quote, moving pictures, illustrated songs, dissolving views and colored slides, refined entertainment for ladies, gentlemen, and children, unquote. The movies were mostly shots of important people, Teddy Roosevelt grinning, William Jennings Bryan shaking his mane, sporting figures like Jim Jefferies or models displaying the latest in bustles and bathing suits. The illustrated songs were quite popular, though the audience, which was supposed to join in singing them, seldom did. Washington Magazine carried this description of a typical song, quote, done to words by H.K. Beale, unquote. It opens with a very pretty picture in which he is apparently leaving her, his straw hat lifted from the bright curls that cluster round his fair young head, her eyes cast modestly down. Then he goes away and fights neath the stars and stripes forever, is pierced neath the blue coat by a cruel bullet from an unseen foe, falls neath the tropical sun, she miraculously comes upon the battlefield, covers his aching head neath her tresses, and as the life blood ebbed away, he unto her did say, When I left you neath the willows. Somehow it is always neath in the illustrated song. The Argus reported wonderingly, quote, if you go to one of these theaters almost any time, you're bound to find somebody you know, whether you are a mechanic or move in the 400, unquote. Considine quickly saw the possibilities in a type of entertainment which drew all classes of people. He reasoned that with all the Nickelodeons showing the same movies, the crowds would go to the one that offered the best live entertainment, just as that segment of society willing to be found in saloons went to the box houses that offered the best variety acts. For $200 and a promise to divert acts uptown from the peoples, Considine obtained a half-interest in Edison's Unique in 1902. Not only was the Unique the first well-appointed Nickelodeon in town, but it was the only one with a stage large enough to hold more than a monologist. For the first time in Seattle, a real variety program was offered on the same bill as a movie. The routines designed to attract the Skid Row drinkers proved just as attractive to uptown teetotalers. The Edison prospered but it proved hard to get fresh acts. The better performers back East wanted big guarantees to cross the country, and Seattle, with a population of less than 80,000, could not always provide a big enough audience to pay the guarantees. Considine decided that a circuit of theaters would solve his problem. He opened houses in Victoria, Vancouver, Portland, in Bellingham, Everett, Yakima, and Spokane. With eight towns on his string, Considine could offer big name entertainers substantial guarantees and long engagements and rotate them around the circuit. According to students of American entertainment, there was truth in Considine's boast that his was, quote, the first legitimate, popular priced vaudeville chain in the world, admission 10 cents, unquote. As his new venture prospered, Considine cut off most of his connections south of Yesler Way. If he continued to make money from alcohol and cards, he kept it a secret. He contributed to the proper charities. He was elected president of a fishing and hunting club. In 1906, he and John Court, another Seattle theater man, were elected delegates to the annual convention of the Fraternal Order of Eagles to be held in New York. The two theatrical Celts, Considine and Court, had been together in 1898 at the conception of the order. Its beginnings were rather unfraternal. The musicians' mutual protective union was on strike against three Seattle theaters, Considine's Peoples, Court's Palm Gardens and H.L. Levitt's Bella Union. The managers and a few of their associates met on a waterfront dock so union spies couldn't creep up on them and organized to break the strike. Their plan was to disband their bands and make do with piano accompaniments for their variety acts. The customers broke up the lockout by demanding more musical volume than could be furnished by pianos. Having arranged strike strategy, the theater men decided to form a club They called it the Independent Order of Good Things, and they selected a motto, Skin'em. The next time the order assembled, things were a bit more formal. The members got together front-center on the stage of the Bella Union. A Seattle lawyer who did frequent business with theater people was initiated. He drew up some bylaws, which were adopted unanimously. The month-old name seemed somewhat unspecific for a group with bylaws. Court, looking at a picture decorating the stage curtain, suggested they call themselves the Eagles. Agreed. Next, they drew up a short, earthy declaration of principles. Not God, heaven hereafter, but man, earth now. Under this mundane motto, the order prospered. Membership quickly expanded beyond theater people. Aries, as the Eagles called their lodges, were formed in more than a hundred cities by the turn of the century. Considine and Court remained friends as well as fraternity brothers. Levitt dropped out of the Eagles and organized a lodge of his own, the Moose. When the Founding Fathers left Seattle for the National Convention of 1906, Considine was thinking of mixing theater business with airy pleasure. He wanted to set up a booking agency in New York to locate talent for his circuit. He did much better than that. In Manhattan, he met Big Tim Sullivan, the Tammany boss. The two large Irishmen found they could do business. They formed a partnership in which Sullivan put up money, an influence, and a nationally known name, and Considine contributed experience and his existing organization. And there's a footnote. Sullivan's financial contribution was not staggering. A New York political writer says Sullivan was in financial trouble at the time and gave Considine three post-dated checks for $2,500 each with instructions to wire him whenever he had to deposit one. Considine ran the shows on the Sullivan-Considine circuit. He bought theaters in Portland, Butte, and San Francisco, built the grand $100,000 showhouse in Tacoma, and set up a nationwide booking agency. He entered into a working agreement with a California chain, and he contracted to supply acts for theaters in Missouri, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, Kansas, and Manitoba. He was a shrewd, ingenious showman, always looking for angles that might increase attendance. As part of his Midwestern operations, Considine air-conditioned his theaters by dropping blocks of ice down the ventilation ducts. How much Considine made from his theatrical operations has never been revealed. At the peak of the circuit's operation, however, Big Tim Sullivan was clearing $400 a day on his $7,500 investment. Considine probably did as well. But while Considine was expanding so profitably on the national scene, there appeared in Seattle the man who was his master as a showman, Alexander Pantages. Pericles Pantages, who started calling himself Alexander after he'd been told the story of Alexander the Great, was born on a Greek island. He ran away from his native village at the age of nine and shipped out as a cabin boy on an undermanned schooner. Three years later, he was beached in Panama after contracting malaria. He stayed on the Isthmus two years, swinging a pick and running a donkey engine in the ill-starred French attempt to dig a canal. He learned to speak a sort of French, as a friend phrased it, and he got malaria again. A doctor told him he'd die if he stayed in Panama, so he shipped out on a brig bound for Puget Sound. Young Pantages made a memorable entry into the Sound. As the ship entered the harbor at Port Townsend, he fell off the yardarm into the chill water, a shock treatment that he later claimed cured his malaria. The free and easy atmosphere of Seattle's Skid Road, where Considine was in his first term as manager of the Peoples, appealed to Pantages. He talked about jumping ship and settling there, but a companion persuaded him it would be better to go on the beach in San Francisco. Pantages spoke half a dozen languages, English as bad as any, as an acquaintance put it. He found a job as a waiter in a German restaurant on the San Francisco waterfront. The owner liked him because he could always find a language in which to communicate with a sailor. Though multilingual, he could read very little much more than my very own name, but he was a meticulous man with figures. When his boss decided to visit his homeland, he left Pantages in charge of the restaurant. Pantages seemed to have run it efficiently. For a time, young Alexander thought that his future was in the prize ring, he appeared in some preliminary bouts in Vallejo, a booming fight center. Short, about 5 feet 6 inches, but husky, he fought as a natural welterweight, 144 pounds. The ringside experts soon decided that mysterious Billy Smith, the reigning welter champion, had nothing to fear from Pantagus, and though it took him longer to make up his mind, he came to the same conclusion and hung up his gloves. He was still looking for a quick way to fame and riches when the Excelsior steamed into San Francisco on July 26, 1897, with more than a million dollars in Klondike gold. Pantages felt that fate had nudged him. He withdrew all his savings, more than a $1,000, for though his pay was not large, he was frugal, and started north. But fate put him aboard a ship loaded with some of the world's most adroit cold-deck artists. When he reached Skagway, a boomtown where coffee cost a dollar a cup and ham and eggs five dollars a plate. He had 25 cents in his pocket. He stopped worrying about getting rich and started worrying about getting food. He took the first job offered as a waiter in the Pullen House, an establishment that had just been started by Harriet Ma Pullen, a 37-year-old widow who had arrived in Skagway from Puget Sound with four children, seven dollars, and a knack of making wonderful pies out of dried apples. Alexander failed to make anything like the money his employer did. His salary was board and room but he did pick up enough information about the trail to the goldfields to be able to foist himself on a party of tenderfeet as a guide. The party made it over the White Pass Trail, escaping the dangers of the precipices and the infantile paralysis epidemic then raging. Pantage's role as guide had the advantage of permitting him to cross the Canadian border in spite of the fact he had no grubstake or passage money to display to the mounted police. But the disguise also had its complications. A guide was expected to build a boat to take his charges down the Yukon to Dawson City. Alexander bluffed it out. He wandered about a riverside camp, watching the experts whipsaw lumber from the trees, arguing with the experienced boatbuilders, telling them what they were doing wrong, soaking up information when they explained why their methods were right. He learned enough to build a boat that looked like a boat, but when he put it in the river, it listed dangerously. Quickly, he hauled it ashore, explained, well, the job's half done, and made another. He lashed the two boats together and ushered his uneasy companions aboard. They made it to Dawson. Pantages later confided to a friend in Seattle that his method of shooting the rapids was to close his eyes and trust that he was too young to die. Pantages had a quick enough head for figures to realize that while prospectors might get very rich, they were more likely to die or go broke. He abandoned his dream of finding gold in the creek beds and concentrated on removing it from the men who had already found it. He found a job in Dawson tending bar, he never mixed drinks but a sign over Charlie Cole's saloon read quote, "wanted one expert mixologist salary 45 dollars per day" the money convinced him he was an expert and he soon became one not only at mixing drinks but in such specialties of the alaskan barkeep as pressing his thumb on the bar to pick up stray grains of gold and spilling a little dust on the ingrained carpet under the scales when he weighed out payment for drinks after a good day a shaky man could fluff an ounce from the carpet It was at Dawson that Pantages first became interested in the financial possibilities of entertainment. He realized that the drinks being equal, men would patronize a saloon that offered the most amusement. He suggested that Charlie Cole turn his saloon into something of a box house with a real stage and a regular orchestra. Cole did and his place prospered. When gold was found in the dark sands along the beach at Nome, Pantages rushed there with a group that has been described as, quote, the liveliest, speediest, swiftest, and most sporting Dawsonites with everyone ready to do everyone else, unquote. Alexander was as greedy as the next sourdough to-do a rival, or, if there were enough money in it, a friend. He had been trained in a tough school. Many of his friends were pugs and pimps. The most legitimate people he knew were gamblers. He asked no quarters, and he gave none. In the town of White Tents on the dark and treeless beach, he expected to start his conquest of the world of entertainment. He spent the first winter working in another bar, It was so cold that he could hear his breath snap when it left his mouth, but he burned with an inner fire. Finally, he found what he was after, a theater and financial trouble. Though the costs of operation were fantastic, a new violin string cost $40. Pantagius was sure the reason for the failure was bad management. He talked some entertainers into staking him and took over management of the enterprise. Pantagius did well. His associates did well to get their money back among those he was reported to have built was kate rockwell klondike kate the queen of the yukon there were men who hated him until his dying day in 1936 for playing fast and loose with the money lent him by alaska's favorite dancing girl even if they hated him they had to go to pantages orpheum where a seat cost 12.50 if they wanted to see the best show in nome the rush petered out before pantages could make a millionaires killing in nome what he gained was a grubstake and confidence that he knew what people wanted in 1902, he sold the Orpheum and sailed for Seattle. He rented an 18-by-75-foot store on 2nd Street, fitted it out with hard benches, bought a movie projector and some film, hired a vaudeville act, and opened the Crystal Theater. He was his own manager, booking agent, ticket taker, and janitor. Sometimes he ran the movie projector. Instead of 12.50 a ticket, Pantages set admission at $0.10. Cents. He based his hopes on keeping ticket costs down and turnover up. He was seeking a mass audience, and he found one. Quote, on Sundays there was no such thing as a performance schedule at the Crystal, unquote, a vaudeville fan has reported. Quote, with people lined up at the box office waiting to get in, Pantages would limit a vaudeville turn that usually was on stage 20 minutes to half that time, and the moving picture streaked across the screen so fast you could hardly recognize the scene. Turnover was all that mattered, unquote. Pantages made enough from the Crystal to open a more pretentious establishment at Second and Seneca in 1904. He unblushingly named it the Pantages. Tickets still cost a dime and customers still lined up to wait for the next show. In 1907, Pantages opened a third theater in Seattle and began to expand his circuit southward along the coast. Big John Considine became aware that in the little Greek from Alaska, he had a rival who might run him out of business. And we'll stop there. This has been episode 17 of the Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking. Join me next time on the Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bennell.